Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. They were like, oh, do you want to say that or whatever? <laughs> I don't mind because that is our frame and everyone should know. And, and it's good to define it in a weird way. Yeah, he's going to be walking out to the ship to go to the Rings of Caffeine to go meet Tivik. He's on his way to that first mission. So that, that's, that's our final farewell. Hello there, and welcome to Dagobah Dispatch, EW's podcast where we take a journey to a galaxy far, far away and talk all things Star Wars. I'm Devin Kogan, and my usual co-host Dalton Ross is out on a top-secret mission this week. Uh, he's getting some sun on the tropical planet of Scarif, and I'm very, very jealous. Uh, but we still have a super fun episode for you today. Uh, later on, you're going to be hearing Dalton's incredible interview out of Star Wars Celebration with the minds behind Andor. Uh, that's right. We're going to be joined by series creator Tony Gilroy and star Diego Luna, who will hopefully have a little bit of insight into the upcoming season two. Uh, but first... I am not flying solo today. I am joined by one of my favorite co-pilots, uh, Christian Holub. Christian, welcome. Hello, Devin. Thank you for having me back. Um, I just wanted to say it's been it's great to be back on Dagobah Dispatch. I uh, have popped on a couple times before. Longtime listeners may remember uh, to argue uh, why the lightsaber fight from Phantom Menace is the best in all of Star Wars. Um, uh, other EW podcast listeners probably know me from our from the Lord of the Rings podcast that Devin and I have done and the House of the Dragon podcast that I jumped on. Um, but happy to be talking Star Wars for the first time in a while. Uh, to start off, I do have to say that Scarif is possibly my favorite planet in all of Star Wars. So I uh, <laughs> love, love the name check and, of course, very jealous of Dalton right now. I think it's mine too. I, I remember yeah. when those first images came out for Rogue One and I was so delighted because I was like, oh my God, a planet that's not just Tatooine 2.0. Exactly. Like it has its own look and feel. And it looks and awesome. Style. I mean, it's a Pacific Island. It's such so a great cool. environment, such a vivid environment that you can, that you're used to seeing. Obviously, uh, it's almost like, you know, so much of that movie is evoking Saving Private Ryan and the D-Day invasion, but it's also like, but transposed to the Pacific Islands theater of that war. Uh, yeah, it just uh, looks awesome and is a big reason why the last hour of Rogue One is so good that, um, you know, we can overlook some confusing, boring stuff in the first uh, part of that movie. Yeah, longtime listeners know that I'm I'm a little I'm a little harsh on on Rogue One, but I love the final act and I love everything that happens on Scarif. And I I remember when those first images came out because we had a, a first look in the magazine that was written by uh, Anthony Bresnikan, who who did a lot of um, reporting on that movie. And um, we had this amazing image of like stormtroopers like wading through turquoise blue water. And it was like, yeah. I made it my desktop background. I was like so obsessed with it for, for such a long time because I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy to be off Tatooine. <laughs> Let's go to another planet, please. <laughs> exactly. Well, honestly, speaking of planets that are different from Tatooine and Star Wars movies that are even more hotly debated than Rogue One, um, I think you and I are going to start by looking back to a piece we wrote last year and more generally a, a Star Wars movie that uh, continues to both fascinate and confuse us. 
uh, two decades later. Um, Devin, yeah. how do you feel about sand? <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've talked a lot about sand on this podcast, whether we're talking about um, best and worst lines. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the the Anakin and Padme romance. But no, yeah, when when you were coming on this week, um, we were trying to figure out what to talk about. And I realized we're just a couple days past the anniversary um, of a particular Star Wars film uh, hitting theaters, uh, 2002's Attack of the Clones, um, which opened May 16th. And as you said, last summer, we did a 20-year anniversary piece for EW, which you can go and reread, where we both kind of rewatched it and kind of thought critically about it and, and revisited it. So I wanted to kick things off today by talking a little bit about Attack of the Clones, because it is, I mean, we talk about it a lot on this podcast, but it is, I don't know, what was your experience like, kind of like rewatching it 20 years later from a, from a critical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, perhaps one of the most discussed subjects of my lifetime, honestly. The Star Wars <laughs> and clones specifically, um, I think, because, uh, well, for various reasons. But um, so, you know, watching it, considering it last year was truly only the latest I- iteration in a lifetime of meditating on this film. And, you know, I guess I was trying to think of it from... It's interesting to look back at these movies, especially now in the heyday of like the Mandalorian, which as we know is filmed inside this using this technology called the volume that allows kind of 3D green screen, basically. I mean, you guys have talked about it on this podcast before. Um, And and the prequels were similar. It wasn't called the volume, but it was a very much, much earlier iteration of this technology, like filming against green screen actors, just against CGI backgrounds and stuff, not really even knowing where they were, or what they were doing necessarily. Um, and at the time that was part of what was so harshly criticized. And I think is a big factor is one factor in why some of the performances in those movies are widely kind of mocked or derided or, or now kind of laughed at. But now that that technique is standard across not just Star Wars, but so much of our cinema. Um, so it's always just kind of interesting to, to think about that. And it always felt like, you know, Lucas's bet with that that would happen someday. And he was kind of a pioneer. I don't know. We all love to hate the Star Wars prequels, although now we, we're kind of accept, accepting them, I think, maybe for the influences they had in in pop culture for better or worse. Yeah, it's kind of a weird time to be thinking about the Star Wars prequels because so many things from them keep popping back up. You know, like we just had Obi-Wan Kenobi, which was, you know, obviously the return of Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen. You know, we've had, um, you know, Temora Morrison has come back and and starred on The Mandalorian and then The Book of Boba Fett. Um, you know, so much of, of what came out of Attack of the Clones was the Clone Wars animated series, and now we're getting Ahsoka. Um, and and, right. and very much kind of picking up all of those threads. Um, but it's still, it's it's so fascinating to me that some parts of the prequels have been just like totally ignored and never mentioned again. And then yes. other parts of it have become insanely, like hugely part of the Star Wars canon and, and really like kind of uh, mapping out what, what comes next over the next couple of years. It's just, it's so funny to me, um, especially rewatching them because you know, the, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like this is a movie I rewatch more than I anticipated I would. You know, like, I feel like I rewatch yeah. it every couple of years. Like recently, my dad got a new TV while I was yes. home and he was like, um, he, and he was, it was, he was like, oh, he was so excited about his new TV. And yeah, what are you going to break it in with? 
with some really cool movie yeah. and he was like scrolling around Disney Plus and he was like, you know what I haven't seen in a while? Attack of the Clones. And I was like, really? That's the movie you want to break in your fancy TV I mean, with? <laughs> but look, really it, know, you'll really know how good the TV is when you see Yoda jumping around fighting uh, Count Dooku. <laughs> look, some of it looked fantastic. All of the stuff um, in Lake Como and then the, the wedding and all of that kind of stuff looked great. Some of it, mm, that's, yeah. that's okay. But that I just this is a movie that you know I I just you, we, you talked about this in, in your piece. It's just like I I can't believe we talk so much about this movie twenty yeah. twenty one years later now. Yeah. Because I think it does. It is like this. It is like the great goal of like millennial internet content content to unlock the perfect take on the Star Wars prequels, and it just can't be done. Like they're just so they're so you you know because George Lucas was given so much artistic freedom. I mean, not for nothing did they did another movie podcast blank check, which is kind of all about directors who become successful and use that success to, to achieve artistic freedom that they started by talking about the star Wars prequels, because they are the ultimate example of that in Hollywood history of a director having basically unlimited power because of his past successes. And so the results are as enigmatic as George Lucas's brain. Uh, I wanted to mention a couple things. One was, uh, you're mentioning how many times you've watched Attack of the Clones, you know, me and my group of friends from high school, we still try to do a star Wars marathon every year. And, you know, so I also, I, because there are so many Star Wars movies now, we can't squeeze all six in or even do machete order like we used to. So we kind of pick and choose and we change from year to year aside from the original trilogy, of course. And uh, sometimes when we watch Rogue One to make it fit, we just start at the beginning of the Battle of Scarif and watch that because it's so thrilling and evocative as its own. And from that, you can go into A New Hope if you were if you so choose and yeah, I sorry watched, to mads mickelson but but the the last bit of rogue one is is definitely the best yeah yeah exactly we love mads but he's stuck in the wrong half of that movie um and yeah you know the other thing about attack of the you know you talk about how influential it's been and it was designed to be influential because it's supposed to answer one of the biggest lore questions in star wars since the beginning which were what the heck were the clone wars and what was what does that mean and the fact that they provide such an insane answer that the Clone Wars were this um, con by Palpatine pitting two sides against each other while he was playing both sides is interesting, especially when you when, you know, as crazy as Attack of the Clones is, it's also a product of the 2000s. And it, in some ways, it seems to evoke, you know, the post 9-11 invasion of Iraq. Like, who are we even fighting? Is this all just for the benefit of the people in charge there's somewhat of that but then it's also very confusing and it and most of all one of the reasons that i think that i really found in in rewatching last year and writing that piece is like that's such an insane plan and in order for it to work every character has to be so insanely stupid that like how can i relate how can i believe in them like you know it's one thing for the jedi to be to fall through their own vanity and certainly there's some gestures that like oh it's such a bloated bureaucracy now and and whatever although it also then gets militarized by the clone wars whatever it is it's also like i don't know but like in order to not see what palpatine was doing yoda and mace windu and anakin have to just be so stupid and ignorant that why would i like them or <laughs> want them to win which is i think one of the dramatic tensions and problem points with that with getting fully to liking this movie 
Yeah, I think mostly this, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, um, but my favorite part of this movie will forever be Detective Kenobi, where it's just uh, Ewan McGregor just sort of like sussing stuff out and like going to the library and having meetings with, um, sharing a cup of Jawa juice with Dexter Jetster, Dalton's favorite character. Of course. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so much of it hinges on him being like, hey, there's a whole planet that's supposed to be here. It is not in the Jedi records. And everybody's like, huh, that's weird. But then it's Never also like, think the, about that ever again. Then also the explanation from that is from like some five-year-old. Right. And so it's also like Obi-Wan's doing this cool noir thing, but also like a five-year-old is smarter than him. It's That's what I'm talking about. Like, it's like, there are cool, there are possibilities of coolness in this movie, but it's all, it's all, it's like thwarting itself. It's like, no, but actually if they're all so stupid, uh, I mean, Devin, you kind of, you know, one of the things that was hanging over our heads when we watched this movie last year was that the Obi-Wan Kenobi show was about to come out. Yeah. And, and obviously that's kind of a testament to some kind of cultural appreciation of the prequels that have built over time. Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor, both reprising their roles it, but is, it, you know, especially because Obi-Wan came out right before, was the last show before Andor, which obviously everybody um, really responded to much bigger and seemed so much bigger a part of the culture. Like, do you think you'll watch the Obi-Wan show, like, again, or as nearly as many times as you've watched Attack of the Clones over the years? Uh, I mean... The honest answer is no, because right. I rewatch movies more than I rewatch television shows. Exactly. Right. Um, but, at the uh, end of the day, <laughs> even Attack of the Clones is only, you know, less than three hours. Exactly. But no, I I I, I do want to go back and rewatch Kenobi because I because I watched it week to week, as did as did everybody. Right. And, you know, I, I would like to watch it sort of knowing now where it's going. Um because because when it first premiered, I mean we had no idea about Little Leia or any of the thing, the places it was going to go, or, right. or you know anything like that. And so now that now that we kind of know what the show is, I think I would like to revisit it and sort of see it as one whole piece of storytelling, as opposed to just sort of like week to week chapters. Um, I think it's certainly not my favorite of the Disney Plus shows, and I think that's probably not a, a controversial opinion. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think it has a lot of stuff in there I really like. I love, still love Ewan McGregor's performance. Um, the bits with him and Hayden Christensen where they actually do get to like meet and speak to each other and, and share scenes together, I think are Probably the really fantastic. Yeah. 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 And I think that a lot of that comes back to, you know, Attack of the Clones and, and to a greater extent, Revenge of the Sith, where, where so much of it is about that that relationship between the two of them, which I've always found the relationship between Anakin and um, Obi-Wan to be so much more interesting and more complex than the relationship between Anakin and Padme. Like just, I mean, I mean, just from the right. purely friendship, you know, st- uh, standpoint, mm-hmm. I just think there's so much more there and it's so interesting. And I think a lot of that rests on the, the strength of Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor as performances, uh, as performers. Totally. It's interesting to think about Attack of the Clones, especially as it is now celebrating 21 years, old enough to drink, buy it a cup of Jawa juice. What has my my life been? (laughs) So it goes. It's, it's, you know. Time uh, Time only moves forward. Return of the Jedi just turned 40. You know, it's it's all... It, it never ends. It exactly. never ends. Yeah. Um, but actually, speaking of Return of the Jedi, uh, this is actually a perfect transition because Ooh, you uh, nailed that. <laughs> when Christian was coming on this week, uh, there was one Star Wars topic that I really wanted to talk to him about because it's something that I've wanted to talk about on the podcast, but haven't really 
found the right time to talk about it, but it is one of my favorite Star Wars facts. And one of my fa- great Star Wars what ifs. You know, there's so many what ifs in Star Wars. Um, you know, what if, what was it? Al Pacino was in the running to play, you know, Han Solo. Uh, obviously, the Lord Miller version of Solo. Like, there's so many right, great, like, right. what, what would have happened? But my personal favorite Star Wars what if concerns a particular filmmaker who Christian and I are working on another story um, about this filmmaker, just kind of like looking at his body of work um, coming up for EW. Um, and it got me thinking about the fact that in 1983, well, I guess before 1983, when George Lucas was planning what to do with Return of the Jedi, he went and met with some different directors um, to look at directing this movie. And one of the directors he really wanted to direct Return of the Jedi is famously David Lynch. As in Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet, Eraserhead, David Lynch. And th- this has fascinated me ever since I learned this fact, like, I don't know, like 15 years ago or whatever, because I think all the time, what would David Lynch's Star Wars have looked like? So, Christian, as someone who does a lot of writing about David Lynch for EW and thinks a lot about David Lynch, t- what do you think a David Lynch Star Wars would have looked like? Because I have no idea. It's such a great uh, question, you know. Um, that's one of the things that's so funny about it. And obviously because a lot of the Lynch movies that that are most famous, like Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive, are so kind of rooted on Earth and in human kind of fears and stuff. On the other hand, especially after Twin Peaks... Um, much of Lynch's filmography does kind of deal with the supernatural and forces beyond, um, slightly beyond human comprehension. And even as his work goes on, especially in Twin Peaks, The Return, he associates those forces with electricity and and the current of electricity and the invention of electricity uh, or the discovery of it anyway. Um, So there there are ways where you could see an in for him. You know, Star Wars has these metaphysical concepts, of course, with the Force, which sometimes manifests as electricity and and material power. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think the biggest reason that... Uh, the biggest template we have for what a Lynch Star Wars would have looked like and either the reason he was... Um, approached by Lucas or the thing he did instead of um, working with Lucas is his Dune movie, um, which I know you watched recently, was streaming on the Criterion channel last month. They've been doing a Lynch series. It's off the Criterion channel, but is about to be on Netflix next month. So if anybody hasn't seen it, but is into Star Wars and is into Dune and the current Dune movies, I definitely recommend it because A, it's very interesting. And and it's especially interesting to see what Lynch's... Um, what his kind of inroads into Dune was, um, because that's also something that's so sci-fi and metaphysical um, and supernatural and stuff. Um, And some of the things he really keys into are, this movie opens with this amazing scene that is not in the Villeneuve movies, the new Villeneuve Dune movies, at least so far. The opening of Lynch's Dune is this meeting between the emperor um, the Padishah Emperor and a guild navigator, a member of um, the spacing guild that kind of controls interstellar travel in the world of Dune. And it is depicted accurately, I think, based on the descriptions in Frank Herbert's book, as this giant fleshy mutated baby thing that like talks out of like little flaps. 
but he's also insanely powerful and can see through 4D like space and time. And that's part of what's mutated it. And so you can, and it's so cool. I, for me, it's the high point of the movie. And honestly, it's all kind of downhill after that. So with the Guild Navigator, you can kind of see, you can imagine Lynch creating kind of in the days of Star Wars practical effects, contrary to the, the CGI of clones and the prequels, maybe designing some cool aliens or aliens that were connected to the Force and, and speaking about the Force in a really... Um, kind of Lynchian way that I think would track because the force as a metaphor is so kind of open-ended and, and different filmmakers and writers have kind of uh, put slightly different shadings on it. However, you know, ultimately though, the flip side of all that I've been saying is that um, Dune is Lynch's least favorite Lynch movie. And the whole reason we have these new Villeneuve Dune movies, as I wrote about uh, at the release of the first one in 2021, is that the Lynch film is marginally, is greatly perceived as a failure, like uh, critically, commercially, um, artistically, according to Lynch himself, he doesn't feel like he really had artistic control over that movie. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Is that what we think? If Would something similar have happened with Return of the Jedi? We know Lucas, of course, would have been a meddlesome producer and kind of not really giving him the freedom. Uh, and Lynch really values artistic freedom. You know, he almost walked away from Twin Peaks The Return over um, some creative disputes at the beginning. Yeah, I, I if you've never heard um, or read David Lynch explain his meeting yeah. in the early 80s with uh, George Lucas, I highly recommend that you go up and, and go look it up. Because he talks it about is, it a lot because he gets asked about it a lot. So, you know, he gets yeah. asked a lot about it a lot. Um, and it's it's fantastic. He tells this story about how he got a call to like go meet George, like drive up the coast of California to like meet him and like rented a car and um, goes in and, and, you know, George starts pitching him the movie and explaining all these things and showing him all this concept art of like Wookiees and, and different things. <laughs> and David Lynch just says, and then I started to get a headache, you know, like <laughs> just that kind of headache where I'm just like, uh-huh, Wookiees, uh-huh, okay, George. And then he explains how like George took him out to lunch in his Ferrari and he's like driving around with the top down with George Lucas being like, this is weird. And then he, my favorite detail, this is such a stupid David Lynch detail. And he goes, yeah. And then he took me to this restaurant where like all they had was salad. And like, I like salad, but that's all they had was salad. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that like 30, you know, like 40 years later or whatever, that's the one thing David Lynch is fixated on. He's like, yeah. man, he took me to this restaurant where all they had was salad and like, oh man. Um, but it's just, it's so, it's so funny where he's just like, yeah, I just got a headache thinking about it. And I was like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so. Especially because Lynch, uh, if you know from uh, his book, that's half memoir, half reported biography, Room to Dream, which I would recommend to any Lynch fan and has you know, a whole chapter, you know, basically each movie has its own chapter. So there's a lot about Dune and what went wrong and how he pivoted to Blue Velvet after, um, which I think we can agree in for Lynch's career as an artist and maybe for our own health as a culture, uh, the right path was taken but it's interesting to think about this other thing and also funny to him you know being grossed out by some uh early kind of healthy california restaurant because even though lynch has a lot of uh inner peace uh from his work with transcendental meditation and uh certainly seems like a healthy hale uh older man um is always drinking caught pounding coffee and cigarettes and like, and you know, and, uh, diet and Coke. cherry pie. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. The Twin Peaks, you know, all that love of 
coffee and good tasting things definitely um, is a part of him. And so, yeah, of course he would get uh, just only salad, like especially like 80s salad, you know, like they didn't know <laughs> about like spices and stuff yet. So it's funny to think about, even though I guess, you know, ultimately, uh, ultimately, I am glad that that it didn't happen. Similar to the movie, speaking of Dune, Yodorowsky's Dune about kind of this attempted uh, adaptation of Dune by the Mexican surrealist director, uh, Yodorowsky. Um, and oh, they were going to have Mobius, the artist Mobius, like design all the ships and stuff. And Salvador Dali was going to play the emperor of the universe. And like, that's all very fun. But it's also like, I don't know if that would have been like a good movie or like good for culture or whatever. So um, it's fun to think about what ifs, even if we're like, yeah, that's probably good. That didn't happen. Yeah, I think you are right, though, that like, there is something very Lynchian about like creature design. And I think specifically for Return of the Jedi and a lot of the stuff in like Jabba's palace, I think I would like to see Lynch's version of Jabba's palace. That's totally what he would have clicked into, especially we know how much he loves cabarets and, and performance spaces. Yeah, I think he would have done less well with the Ewoks. I think that would have just, he wouldn't have been into the Ewoks. But I think, I, I would like to see his version of, of Jabba's Palace. So, yeah, exactly. Someday, um, in another yeah, universe. In another universe, you know, if Lucian's library is always how I think of it from the Sandman, which is the library in Sandman has not just every book that ever was written, but every book that was ever written in dreams. And so I always think of, yeah, you going there and finding all these what if movies and and stuff like that um that's one of them for me yeah totally well you know Devin, the one another thing i wanted to talk about while i was here with you that i think is an interesting testament to star wars's current place in pop culture is the success of romance novelist ali hazelwood um, oh my god, you have the book. You I have, have the book here. I have a physical book here. She has written three books. The third is either out now or it's about to come out this month. Um, and she got her start as a writer, as a writer of Raylo fan fiction on Archive of Our Own. Um, I was turned on to her by uh, my girlfriend, actually, who's been a, a fan of hers for a while and loves all of her books, Love Hypothesis, Love on the Brain, and then most recently, Love Theoretically. Um, that really grow that have been very successful crossover hits, you know, obviously romance novels in general have really been on the rise lately and have been very successful. Our colleague Maureen Lenker has been documenting and covering them for years on EW.com. And She's been on this podcast talking about, um, some of the different Star Wars versions of it. Yeah, She's exactly. Fantastic. And this is my favorite version of it is the, is the Allie Hazelwood version that, um, you know, mines the Star Wars sequels, which, uh, you know, we were recently talking about the prequels. It's interesting now to see as we'll watch kind of the cultural lifespan of the sequel trilogy unfold. Uh, it ended a little kind of ignominiously with Rise of Skywalker. And so it's something that the official Star Wars content mostly seems to kind of be avoiding. You know, we're much closer to the post kind of original trilogy timeline in The Mandalorian Um and Ahsoka and all of that stuff. But, you know, I don't know. I just think it's cool that this has really achieved uh, these these books. Uh, this author in particular, Allie Hazelwood, has really achieved success. And we're seeing something that started in Star Wars, this kind of dynamic between Rey and Kylo, um, uh, kind of influence and, and ripple across culture. 
Yeah, it is really interesting. And I'm really glad you brought this up because this is something we haven't really talked about on the pod yet. But um, yeah, like I've read uh, Love Hypothesis right. by, by Allie Hazelwood. That's the, that's the only one of hers I've read. Um, but it is kind of fascinating how, uh, if you're not familiar with these, it's basically, it, it, she like Christian said, she was a fanfic author who started writing Raylo fanfic. And then in fanfic terms, it's called filing the, seal, filing the serial numbers off where you... Um, <laughs> take something that kind of started as a fanfic and then sort of like reimagine it and republish it under like a, a wholly original, you know, kind of concept. So there's a lot of famous examples of yeah, this. The most famous um, example, I believe, is... 50 Shades, Shades of Grey, which started as Twilight fanfic yes. and um, was then kind of reimagined as a, a totally new story with new characters, but, but kind of based on archetypes. And I mean, this is a... I mean, this has been around forever. I mean, it's the, the same thing as, you know, rewriting Shakespeare to make um you know uh, 10 things i hate about you it's it's something like that but it is interesting mm. how yeah, like this is probably a good this, comparison yeah how the star wars sequel trilogy while even though as a general rule specifically with how it ended with rise of skywalker um our former co-host Lauren Morgan I, is no longer here with us, but this is the point where she takes a big sigh and and is like, "Oh, Rise of Skywalker." Um, but it, it is interesting how possibly like, the, the worst movie ever made. It's true. It's true. Um, Lauren is correct. Um, <laughs> and, but it is interesting how like even despite the general disdain for Rise of Skywalker and how that trilogy ended, um, it really has continued to kind of permeate pop culture, and we're seeing that now. They literally just announced a Ray movie, um, a standalone, yeah. you know, with with Daisy Ridley returning. And we don't know kind of, I mean, we know it's set like 15 years later and we have a rough idea of what it's going to be about. But other than that, we don't know much about it. Right. That's but true. Is, I had actually kind of forgotten that, that we are going to still be playing with the sequel characters and timeline in the Star Wars universe um, at some point in the future. Like so many announcements, you know, I think that one is relatively undated, but it's something they're psyched about or that Daisy yeah. Ridley has agreed to do. It's really interesting, especially because like for the last couple of years, they have been all in on Disney Plus and Mandalorian and Ahsoka and this sort of different timeline. Yeah. The Filoniverse. But like you said, I mean, these these sequel films did actually make a huge cultural impact and we're seeing it in in, you know, fanfic and publications and and things like this. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I've been reading The Love Hypothesis. I haven't finished it yet. Um which uh, it's very anger cute. my girlfriend, but a- it's very cute. Yeah, there are other her kind of specific angle in the same way that you know, Fifty Shades of Grey was Twilight uh, fanfic with the angle of you know BDSM and stuff. Love Hypothesis and Ellie Hazelwood's books are kind of rooted in Star Wars fanfic, but in this world of STEM and like science academia, which I believe is informed by her own experiences in those fields. So, um, you know, if you if you like reading about that kind of stuff. And I find it pretty interesting. It's a world I know very little about. Um, but Love Hypothesis as the first one, which I believe was published as a fanfic, you know, with Star Wars names on AO3 and that before she edited it and released it as a book. And it's been so successful that she has two more. That one, because it literally did start as fanfic, is is the most, I think, rooted in Star Wars. And even when you're reading the published version um, with, you know, the main character's name is Olive, but is... Uh, obviously Ray or whatever, you can easily substitute, oh, which character is which, you know, in the Star Wars sequels in Last Jedi. And she has so much fun with this cast of characters, puts them in such fun 
situations and explores really interesting dynamics between them. It's really kind of a vision of the possibilities of the sequel trilogy and this cast of characters that we got there. Um, that Rise of Skywalker really kind of, I think, casts a huge shadow over because that movie's so creatively unsuccessful and it doesn't really feel like they do enough with those characters. They're too busy adding on other elements. Um, that if you are someone who enjoyed Last Jedi as much as I did, as, uh, as much as some of us did, or even just enjoyed Force Awakens, you know, or remembers enjoying that movie so much, um, I feel like in some ways her books is particularly Love Hypothesis where the connection's most direct. It kind of shows... Some creative possibilities that were left untapped by the sequels, which, and since I was just talking about, you know, the one of the creative banes of the sequels being George Lucas's kind of unsupervised creative control, as we'll probably talk about more and more over time, the sequels are kind of the exact opposite. Uh, obviously, they were meant to be anti the prequels in so many ways, but like uh, at one level, because nobody was in total creative control and people kept kind of, I'm going to take it this way. No, I'm going to take it this way. I'm going to take it back this way. Uh, you know, between JJ Abrams and Ryan Johnson's installments and all kinds of writers and producers that were involved, um, you know, those ultimately ends up kind of a mess, but there's a lot of fragments here that it's cool to see people kind of people like Ali Hazelwood kind of pick up and run with. Yeah, it is. It is pretty fun. And if if you're not familiar with the book, I recommend it, if, especially if you like, you know, kind of like fun, fluffy, um, kind of romantic comedy kind of stories. And you'll know it by the the cover art, which is exactly um, quite. It looks very much like Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley. And, and <laughs> the man, you, the, yeah, <laughs> the male character's name is Adam. So, yes. uh, you know, she's not too shy about the connection. It's a little, it's a little on the nose, but, um, but no, it's a very fun read. And especially if you, like many people were like, oh man, the sequel trilogies had so many good, had good bones, but, but not necessarily. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, uh, and I just double checked her latest book, Love Theoretically is actually, is out in June, in mid June. So, um, you know, you'll probably see it in bookstores, uh, if you're out and about, uh, okay, now I want to see if I can try to get Dalton to read these. I don't. I highly doubt he will. But <laughs> now, I, now that's my next goal is I want to yeah. get Dalton to read these books, and then we can have you back, and we'll talk. We'll we'll have a little book club, and we'll get Marine in here, and she yeah, gives the romance. Yeah, you know, exactly. Expertise. Our romance correspondent. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna have a little Dagobah Dispatch book club and, <laughs> and make this happen. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> but they're very fun, and I, I highly recommend them. And I'll need to to pick up the rest of them because I've only read the first one. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I've heard they're they're just as good. Um, but yeah, love hypothesis is is so much fun. It's so cute, Absolutely. and and you know, such a you know, I, I you know maybe there are some Star Wars fans out there who have never tried romance novels before, but I you know I think it's really a testament to the the power of this franchise ultimately, and some of the characters and concepts it's come up with that they can um, influence other parts of of culture. Yeah, and we're seeing that with um, when Maureen came on to talk about The Princess and the Scoundrel, um, which was is a book published within the Star Wars universe. Yes, um, and you're right. And sort of, you know, takes a little bit from the romance novel kind of playbook. It's not explicitly like, you know, um, what you think of as, as a romance novel, but everything down to like the cover art and the, the some of the styling and, and things like that is, is definitely um, – uh, lifted from from that genre, so it's it's kind of fun to see. Star yeah, Wars which obviously into is so different genres is so crucial to Star Wars from the beginning. It's a mix of samurai movies, westerns, you know, uh, Flash Gordon, space serials. These are all the things that were kind of in Lucas's head as he was putting it together. You know, the pod race and Phantom Menace that's taken from car races, drag races. You know that he loved growing up in uh, California, um, 
And, you know, in those years when there were, where we were between Star Wars movies, it's hard to imagine now that we get new Star Wars kind of content every couple months. But, you know, in the long years between the prequels and the sequels, you saw Star Wars influence other things or people, you know, become part of other grab bags like Firefly and things or Guardians. You know, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot with the release of the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie, that when that first one came out in 2014, that was obviously a year before Force Awakens. And so one of the reasons that movie, I rewatched it so good, but like another, uh, so that's a main reason that Guardians popped as hard as it did and gave us this years long trilogy. But another part of it is it filled that Star Wars shaped hole in our heart and took so much from Star Wars and added its own flavor. And uh, that's what culture, what good culture is all about, you know? Absolutely. Well, there is no shortage of Star Wars content right now, both <laughs> official and unofficial. Yeah, exactly. And with that, I think now is a perfect time. To, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to hear from the minds behind one of my favorite Star Wars shows of the last couple of years, um, Andor. We're going to hear from Tony Gilroy and Diego Luna. You can listen to that right after this quick break. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Tony, you guys are now sort of knee-deep in filming on season two. Um, what, if any, are the sort of biggest differences between season two and season one? The expectations. Our expectations, the audience's expectations, um, the responsibility that we have to the characters that we've set up and launched into a, you know, a world and their trajectories, and our responsibility, I guess, to, uh, you know, to, to bring it home efficiently. You know, so we have, you know, there's a business side of it. And, uh, but, but mostly it's, it's to pay off emotionally and stick the landing. Diego, uh, Cassian's arc in season one was from a guy driven from like by self interest and survival instinct into one finally ready to fight for a cause. What's his arc in season two? Well, he has to understand what that fight means, you know? What, what, I mean, he's waking up. But now he has to learn the language and understand his abilities and, uh, and the need that's out there, you know. Uh, he has to learn to be a spy. He, he has to learn what he's capable and what he's not capable of doing and uh, understand teamwork in a, in, a, in, a, in a way we don't see in, in, in the first season. Uh, and he has to grow. He has to grow for years, you know. Uh, it's a long time. Tony, I know we're, we're picking up a, a, a year, we're jumping ahead a year to when season two starts. So what is unseen in that time? What's happened in that year? Well, that's a spoiler, isn't it? <laughs> that's a really <laughs> sneaky way to ask a spoiler. <laughs> I mean, that you've seen him escape. You know, uh, you know the characters that are moving forward. Um, I think uh, it's a really interesting writing responsibility. It's a really... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say it's the first time it's ever been done because someone will come up with it. And, 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 but I don't know a comp. We haven't been able to think of a comp. We're going to use negative space and storytelling in a really interesting way uh, with these gaps. There'll be, there'll be four gaps. There'll be the gap before you start one and it'll be each, each block will have a year in between it. 
And the trick is to um, make it worth it. Uh, when we come back, well, they're almost like needle drops in a way. I know that's an old term, but uh, they're almost like needle drops and, and we stay for a very short period of time. What's the most important three, four, five days a year later that tell you everything you need to know and how do you tell it without you know, devolving into this sort of Chekhovian idea of, oh, well, I haven't seen you since uh, the last time you came to, you know, without doing any of the awkward exposition, just if we treat it absolutely naturally. So, we, that's the bar we set um, and that's the game we're playing. And um, I think we kind of, I mean, we we think we figured out how to do that. Uh, the proof <laughs> the proof will be, uh, will be someone else's uh, choice to make. Diego, are Cassian and Mon Mothma going to finally meet this season? <laughs> <laughs> wow, dude, you're I, sneaky. I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I mean, but let's put it this way, right? But no, well, you ha if you you just saw uh, Rogue One, you told me, mm -hmm. so you know where this ends. You know, you 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 can make the math. But I I think it's not about that. You know, uh, the be the beauty of this show, uh, I think, is that even though sometimes you know what's gonna happen. Uh, it hits you as if you're learning it for the first time because you are witnessing this from the inside, from the, you know, the personal perspective. You know, you get to live it with the characters or through the characters. Therefore, it hits you differently. It's not about the events necessarily, but about the choices made and the, and the risk these characters are taken, uh, taking. So it's because you know them that you care like you didn't care before. And it's interesting how Diego says, you know how it ends. And I've heard you say that, Tony, for it ends on Yavin 4. We all know that. So how close is the end of this series going to get to the that point? How close are we going to go up? Are we literally going to go up to that scene where they meet Jinnah? We said that in the first junket. Yeah. He's going to be walking out. I, I, I didn't mind. They were like, oh, do you want to say that or whatever? <laughs> I don't mind because that is our frame and everyone should know. And And it's... Good to define it in a weird way. Yeah, he's going to be walking out to the ship to go to to the rings of Kafrine to go meet Tivik. He's on his way to that first uh, that first mission. So that that's that's our final that's our farewell. So as we get to that point and we get closer to those events, are we going to start meeting some other people from Rogue of course. One? Or? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. I mean, and there's some that are inevitable. There are some that are surprising. There's some that we probably can't get, uh, you know, for various reasons. And, and, and yeah, it's, uh, but you kind of know who's, uh, who's, who's in the stew there. You certainly know who's going to be on Yav before he and Mon Mothma have a scene together in, in, in Rogue. Um, um, so yeah, we, and, and the calendar's inevitable in some ways for the people that are, the people in this convention and the, you know, the people that are really know this five years, the way there's some, big events on the calendar that we have to pay attention to, and, uh, and we will. Well, one of the things I really loved about season one is it's not just the rebellion versus the bad guys. You have different factions within the rebellion. They might have different goals um, and different methods that they use in terms of how extreme they'll be. How much are we still going to be exploring that in season two? Oh, uh, that's, that's a big, I mean, that's really... What the uh, show is major, about. <laughs> a major, yeah. I mean, how does this all come together and the difficulty? If your business is based on paranoia and secrecy and death, and how do you expand your business? How do you grow? How do you grow your business? You know, how do you go public? How do you go wide? How does it turn into, you know, the rebel alliance that emerges in Yavin is, is, uh, you know, it's almost like the Christian Democrats. It's, uh, it's a, it's a consolidated compromise group. 
Well, what happens to all the original gangsters and the hardcore people who built that road? What happens to them and how do they integrate with that? That'll be a lot of what we're doing. And on the other side too. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the other side also has factions, uh, yeah. has real people, real people with real needs and that see the world from different perspectives and, and that complicates everything, you know? Well, how much of this is Cassian figuring out where he fits? He wants to be in the rebellion. He says to Luthen, take me on. But Luthen works very differently from other people. As Cassian meets more different people and factions, how much of this is his figuring out where, how far he's willing to go? Oh. Well, that's our show. I, 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 and I that's think, our show. I think you want us to, to, I mean, to talk about something that hasn't happened. Let us shoot it. No, but that's the cost <laughs> let, of let that. Us, it's the cost of that, yeah. right? Yeah. It's the cost of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot, of, a lot to that that Cassian has to figure out, and uh, and a lot of events he has to witness still, to and sacrifices to make. Mm -hmm. How do you, as an actor, Diego, in all these time jumps, if every few episodes you're going forty, or how do you recalibrate where your character is at that point? It's pretty much, I think, set by the writing because of what the needs are for the next event you know and uh, there's there there is we're back into into where we started with row one you know the there's a backstory we have to fill and there's some backstory that is written uh, you know or, or thought by by tony uh, and there's another you have to build you know like the everyday you know, the little stuff, the, the references you have to have, the images you have to have uh, of what happened in that year. Uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. We, we go back to, to the way we, we actually did film, you know, where it says, like, it says what happens, but not necessarily what you witnessed before. And that, and that blank space, that it's, it's, it's cool to feel, you know, and that's our job. Awesome. I can't wait to see it, guys. Thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Very <laughs> Thank sneaky. You our thanks to Tony Gilroy and Diego Luna, and uh, thanks to Christian Holub for joining me this week. And most importantly, thank you to everyone at home for listening. If you like the podcast, we would absolutely love it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, you can connect with us on social media by following Entertainment Weekly on all socials. That's EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag and follow us directly using at Dalton Ross, at Devin Kogan, and at CM Holub. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll do it all over again next week. Bye-bye. This episode of Dagobah Dispatch Podcast is hosted and produced by Dalton Ross and Devin Kogan. Produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Executive produced by Chanel Johnson. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you.